time for Dancing Gear. We've got a podcast to do. Hello there and welcome to Magic by Design. We're almost there this week as we review Disney's 49th animated feature, The Princess and the Frog, first released in 2009. My name is Ken and I am joined, as always, by my co-host slash brother Garrett. Gar, how are you? Hey, 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 I'm here. Yeah, you, Hi. Just, you just woke up? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah... I haven't had, like, a good night's sleep in, like, three months. Yeah. Like, a good night's sleep. You know the night's sleep where you go to sleep and you wake up and you're like, what a good night's sleep I had. Yeah, and you got a, a skip in your step. Yeah, yeah, you have a happy old day because you've slept well and you're energetic and you're uh, well-rested. And nah, I haven't had that in, like, three months. That period seems to coincide with our most recent lockdown. Do you think that's part of it? Probably. That That's a contributing factor. But also my sleep schedule is as messed up as it could humanly possibly be. Where I don't think I fell, fall, fell, in, fell in asleep. I'm just going to run with not being able to say words. I don't think I've fallen asleep earlier than 5am in like the last three months. Which is deeply, deeply unhealthy, Ken. That's not a that's not a way anybody should operate. Disney! Uh, yeah, P- Princess and the Frog. Maybe I should get kissed by a frog and then I'd turn into a frog and then I'd be able to sleep do frogs sleep i assume frogs sleep i feel like they sleep with their eyes open but maybe that's just that would be creepy frogs are creepy though the frogs in this film are creepier again with their freaking long legs they stand up too much i'm like that's weird stop it we'll get into it but much like jimmy cricket and pinocchio they decided to take away all the unappealing stuff about frogs and just we were left with that which is somehow even more unappealing yeah jimmy cricket is at least like cute and he's dapper as opposed to these freaking frogs which are just monstrosities that have really long legs and look weird proportioned and I don't like them. Gar, we are returning to 2D animation for the first time since 2004's Home on the Range. <laughs> we are also seeing a return to the Broadway musical format that served the studio so well during the Disney Renaissance. This film is so nostalgic. Like, you'll get 10 minutes into the film and they'll be singing songs. I don't even love the songs in this film. There's not even songs in this film that I'm like, oh yeah, that's a banger. That's a song I love. That's a song I'll remember. But you just, it's like, do, 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 jazz. <laughs> and like doing the Broadway songs, singing your longing songs straight into the villain song. It's like, ah, oh, this is the way things used to be. This is the way the world used to exist before they stopped making musical films for reasons beyond comprehension. Yeah, it just takes me to my happy place. Reminds me of my youth. Clemens and Musker returned to Disney to direct. As we know, they did The Great Mouse Detective, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, and Treasure Planet. They were ousted when the Disney studio closed down the 2D wing of production. They were only gone very shortly, though, weren't they? Yeah, so this went into production probably around 2006, maybe. Uh, 2005. Because they left in like oh five. Because Treasure Planet was like oh four or oh two. Yeah, oh, they, they were. I'm um, now on the Wikipedia page. Uh, they refused to greenlight some projects, which led to them leaving, and then they came back less than a year later when John Lasseter came back. So John Lasseter was the impetus for them returning. So they, they were gone for less than a year. Disney had announced that 2004's Home on the Range would be their last traditionally animated film after the company's acquisition of Pixar in 2006. Ed Catmull and John Lasseter, new president and chief creative officer of Disney Studios, reversed this decision and reinstated the hand-drawn animation studio. Many animators who had either been laid off or left the studio when the traditional animation units were dissolved in 2003 were located and rehired for the project. I like that it's located, it's like, hunt them down. We need them. It's like the Muppet movie where you had to go on a road trip to get them get them all back. Did they also travel via map? Yes. Good. Princess and the Frog was released in December 2009 to wide critical acclaim from critics and audiences alike. They particularly appreciated the revival of the traditional 2D animation format, the characters, music and themes. Princess and the Frog was also a financial success, grossing $269 million against a budget of $105 million. So, nice nice profit there. It was the most successful 2D movie since Lilo and Stitch and the most successful film overall since Tarzan. So, 
you know, we really did go through a post-Renaissance period there, Kai. Wait, what do you mean there? If it's it, it can't have been the most successful movie overall since Tarzan, if it was the most successful movie since Lilo and Stitch. Sorry, should, should I say that again? It's the most successful 2D movie since Lilo and Stitch, and the most successful film overall since Tarzan. But if Lilo and Stitch was more successful than it, it can't have been the most successful film since Tarzan. But some of the 3D movies grossed more. Yeah, but Lilo and Stitch grows more. Lilo and Stitch was a 2D movie. Since, since. Yeah, since Tarzan, there has been Lilo and Stitch. It can't have been the most successful movie overall since Tarzan if Lilo and Stitch was more successful than it. Because Lilo and Stitch was after Tarzan. But it's but some of the 3D movies might have... But Lilo and Stitch is 2D! <laughs> Gaslighting with your craziness. Either way, it made money. It was successful. Okay, you're mean to me. You took bad notes. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to edit all that out. <laughs> The editing power. This is what I get for not insisting on editing, even though editing takes time and I don't want to edit. What could that have meant? Because I researched this stuff. Was it perhaps the most successful Disney animated studios movie? Because Lilo and Stitch wasn't Disney animated studio. Yeah. It was the Toon Studio. Yeah, but it was a mainline movie though. So I don't know. But Mm. uh, either way, it was successful and the 2D format was the common denominator. Yeah, 2D's back. Disney musicals are back. Garrett, the visual look of this film is modelled after The Lady and the Tramp, which John Lasseter called the pinnacle of Disney's style. All right, dragging it back up. I'm on the quote on the Wikipedia page, and it says, The Animation Studio's most successful film overall since Tarzan. So, like, Lilo and Stitch definitively made more money. Or maybe it didn't. Two was 273 and an 80 million budget. Yes, Lilo and Stitch made slightly more money. On, less, uh, on a lesser budget. So even if you're thinking maybe it's a more profitable film. This Wikipedia page is just wrong or badly phrased. Or maybe they do just mean the actual animation studio itself as opposed to the Toon Studio that made Lilo and Stitch. See, that's what confuses me because it was released as a mainline film. Well, it was released, it's all distributed under the, the well, Buena Vista at the time, perhaps, but either the Disney animated studios thing, but whether or not it was the studio itself that made it is the question, Ken, which it was, well, for every other film, but Lilo and Stitch was. As I was saying anyway, Karen, thank you for compounding my misery. Pedantically picking apart, I'm, I'm barely awake and I'm still a pedantic jerk who can't help but pick apart things you say just to be a jerk and the worst. They had to rebuild the hand-drawn process from the ground up as it was dismantled when the studio went all in on computer animation. So John Astor was very keen for them to go back to that 1950s style. That's a pre, that stylized approach, starting with Sleeping Beauty. And we saw that shift further as we went into 101 Dalmatians with, you know, that highly stylized look. And then we saw Aristocats where it was like drawn by pencils by people who don't know what people look like. It was like an approximation of people by people who have never seen people. Lady and the Tramp also heavily informed the style of the New Orleans scenes, while Disney's Bambi served as the template for the bayou scenes. Yeah, I got that. Because the bayou scenes are beautiful. Why didn't they use the rescuers as the template for the bayou scenes? You know, the film largely set in the bayou. Actually, the, the crocodiles who were chasing them at the start looked quite like the crocodiles from Rescuers. Yeah, but do you think that that would be the inspiration for this film? Typical Rescuers erasure, as usual, Ken. Uh, those mediocre films from the 80s just aren't getting the love. Was Rescuers 70s? 70s. In the 70s. Uh, aren't getting the love that they deserve because Disney want to cut them out. According to art director Ian Gooding, Bambi painted what it feels like to be in the forest instead of the forest. So Princess and the Frog would be, in turn, trying to capture the essence of roaming through New Orleans. Yeah, the, the closing scene in particular where they're getting married in the woods as frogs yeah. and you have all the animals there, that's so Bambi. It's as Bambi as Bambi could Bambi. 
I do appreciate that kind of style. It's a more impressionist style because they're not trying to replicate it exactly. They're trying to replicate a feeling and I really respond to that. Yeah, if only they gave the rescuers the credit it deserved. We're going to do it right now, Gar. Rescuers, you walked so this film could run. Yeah, you invented New Orleans in animation. Not freaking Princess and the Frog. I forgot the name of the movie we were talking about for a moment. I'm barely awake. Leave me alone. Gar, please <laughs> get your game together. I know I made a mistake, but you're flopping all over the place. I'm right just a mess. I'm just an incoherent mess. According to veteran Disney animator Andreas Deja, the goal was to focus on going back to what the line could do rather than the style being influenced by a CGI look like it had in recent years. Now, even in the previous DVD films, it had a graphical look to it. Where this you, was, even since the 90s, they've been yeah. increasingly making those films look inc- more and more graphical, less and less hand-drawn, as opposed to this, which it still looks like, don't give it's not like Sleeping Beauty. It doesn't look that kind of hand-drawn. It still looks computer-animated, mostly because it is. But it, yeah, it has some of the more character in there. More painterly style. Some pieces of it are imperfect, which is actually quite nice. One note I had here, the, the Art Deco sequence for Almost There. I, I really like that as well. For the... Oh, yes, for yes, for the song. Yeah, that's a very, very... Again, that's one of like what those stylized, abstract choices. But it, it's different and matches the tone of the overall film. I like that too. I wish they actually kind of did that for more of the songs. You know, where they, they go into this different art style or different like sensibilities for the, to make the song stand out as opposed to just you know characters singing and abstract sequences have their place when they make sense in the context of the story yes when it's not just it's time for pink elephants as it was in Dumbo or it's like this is a, that was an important song that, that told you who the character was and some of the animation there was really nice the way they transitioned in and out of that style throughout the song because they went back to the style of the film throughout that song and some really nice transitions there as well for me overall something about 2D animation is so much more tangible to me. Possibly because, you know, as human beings, we respond to art and Mm -hmm. much more than 3D animation, 2D animation seems like moving art, especially this film. As we said, some of the backgrounds were absolutely beautiful with their painterly style. Heavy shot of 3D animation. 3D animation can't be harsh or harsh. I also find myself... (laughs) Just to kind of move on. I'm going to let you just wake up a little more. Okay. I also find myself relating to the characters more. I I, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's what I grew up with, but I, I just... Sometimes 3D characters. Uh, we noted that with Meet the Robinsons with Cornelius which, which is his later name. But, mm, uh, Lewis. Lewis because I forgot his actual child name. But his face was just, it's just less expressive overall. Yeah and even like we were talking about Bolt who is, who is a very expressive dog but there, there, his face, that was the first time as I said last week I looked at that dog and said this is a computer generated thing which I didn't think for a second watching Princess and the Frog. I was immersed in Princess and the Frog. Whereas that uh, that animation took me out of Bolt a little. And I, I think it is there. I think it's the expressiveness. It's like and then 3D animation has increasingly gotten there, but there's a reason to, they probably made Toy Story about toys, because toys don't have to emote as much. You know, if Woody doesn't emote, he's a wooden doll. He shouldn't emote that much. Same with Buzz Lightyear. He's a plastic toy. He shouldn't emote that much. So you can kind of get away with it with toys, and you can kind of get away with it when, you know, Pixar... When was the first film Pixar made about humans? Because there was Monsters, Inc., there was A Bug's Life, there was... Probably Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo, which has humans in it, but isn't about humans. So even Pixar, who are like the pinnacle of 3D animation, still like, let's do animals, let's do things that are easier to caricature in this 3D style. Incredibles. Yeah, Incredibles, which would have been 2006. uh, Over a decade after they were making films, that was the first film that they made predominantly featuring humans. So you you don't blame Disney for being like, uh, we don't, we haven't 
haven't really worked out how to make these 3D goops actually emote in a way that Simba did in The Lion King. But that's the thing, that goes back to the start of animation at Disney. We talked about this. Humans are hard to animate. Mm -hmm. You know, not just their expressions, but their movements. So you can see why they became known for their animals in their stories, because it's just... It's easier. And more appealing. Yeah. And kids like animals. Animals are fun. Moving forward to the story here, Gar. The film is loosely based on the novel The Frog Princess by E.D. Baker, which in turn is based on the grim fairy tale, The Frog Prince. It's a merger of two projects that Disney and Pixar coincidentally had in development at the time. So they both had a version of the story in the pipeline. So they just jammed them together and hope for the best? Yeah. And let Disney make it instead of Pixar? Yep, they were like, you can have it. Yeah, we're making, what, 2009 was up? Yeah. So we'll make the one that's nominated for an Academy Award. You can do the other one. Which ironically beat Princess and the Frog for Best Animated Feature. So yeah, they were like, all right, you want to do the frog one? We'll let you do it. We'll just, you know, make, and what, 2008 was Wally, wasn't it? Yep. And 2010 was Toy Story 3. So Pixar are just like, yeah, yeah, you can have it. We're just making masterpieces over here. Never mind. Yeah, by all accounts, the frog story wasn't working at Pixar, so they were happy to hand it over. Mm, and then this show, do you think there was like that internal competition between Pixar? Because like, obviously a corporate acquisition changes relationships and makes people want to prove themselves. And Pixar are probably always a little worried that Disney are suddenly going to be like, we're getting rid of you and just going to combine you with our own animation studio. Even though the Pixar brand name carries so much weight, maybe not as much as it used to, but certainly in that era carried so much weight. Do you think there was like, like a little bit of like, oh, we really do need to prove ourselves in this Disney era so they don't get rid of us? Yeah, and I think there was probably an instinct to defend their culture as well, mm. because, you know, what they had done has been so successful. They had their own way of doing things, so they, they didn't want Disney to meddle too much. And they didn't, in fairness, for the most part. The only thing that they probably insisted on was more sequels. Yeah, and to be fair, given that John Lasseter was the one that took over Disney, as opposed to someone from Disney taking over at Pixar, really it was just the other way around. The Pixar culture overtook Disney more than the, the Disney took culture overtook Pixar. But as you said, they made more and more sequels, more and more unwanted sequels, some would say. I would say. Like Monsters University and the Cars movies. They're not good. Yeah. Toy Story sequels, great though. The Toy Story sequels are worth it. Musker and Clemens thought that given all fairy tales were set in Europe, they could do an American fairy tale. They stated that they chose New Orleans as a tribute to the history of the city and its magical qualities and because it was Lasseter's favourite city. And pandering to the studio <laughs> head. Oh, well, but uh, he can't, he'll, he'll definitely let us make the film if we set it in New Orleans. The directors spent 10 days in Louisiana before starting to write the film, so they got their free holiday guard for the mm. first time in a while. Tiana was inspired in part by famed restaurateur Leah Chase, who Clemens and Musker met on their research trip. Leah worked at the restaurant until her death in 2019 at the age of 96. There's a food show on Netflix called Somebody Feed Phil, where Phil Rosenthal, who was one of the creators of Everybody Loves Raymond, goes around the world having food. He goes to her restaurant. So if you want to hear about her story, uh, watch that. Ken loves his food shows on Netflix. I do. The writers thought that Tiana's character motivation of simply dreaming to have her own restaurant was not appealing enough, so they expanded it to make it her father's dream as well, mm -hmm. with the extra philosophy of food bringing people together from all walks of life. Yeah, that added a bit of depth to the story. Yeah, what do you think about the, the Tiana character arc of being somebody who thinks, I just have to work harder to make my dreams come true? And then the moral of the story is that you need the other parts of your life as well in place in order for your dreams to come true. Anti-capitalist message there, Ken. That's a really strong theme because it is a bit of a pastiche on the American dream in that, you know, working hard is all that matters. And, you know, everyone that says, like, anywhere I got, I got by myself. And that's a, 
actually one of the more poisonous aspects of the American culture mm. where, you know, you have to recognize that, you know, you have to have a, a personal life. You have to remember that the people around you help you to get where you are, you know. Yeah. So it, it's a recognition that work isn't the only thing in life. Work like balance creates who you are. Do you think there's people like at Disney being like, is it rich of them to be making a film about work-life balance at the moment? <laughs> yeah, because you're grinding us into the ground. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Disney cancelling films halfway through and getting us to make them from the ground up, being like, oh, you know, we're going to make a film about how it's not all about the work, it's about the people, and it's about the balance in your life, and it's about looking inside and finding what you really want. you got to look a little deeper, Ken, uh, and and understand that uh, work isn't all there is, and then Disney are like, oh, geez, typical executives, blind to the, 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 the woes we're going through to get these films out the door. I have no idea what the work called. Maybe it was like, all right, five o'clock, we're going home. We'll come back tomorrow. Maybe it was like that. I have no idea. <laughs> From what I've seen of behind the scenes documentaries, you see people going that extra mile and staying there overnight and stuff. Mm. And like, you don't get the sense that they're made to do it, but the culture is that you do what you have to. So It's always that case in creative industries as well, isn't it? Because you see the same stories and there's a lot of video game crunch stories these days about like uh, uh, people being expected to go that extra mile to churn out something really good and it's like it's probably like just exploiting people who are working in their dream industry you know people probably grew up being like I really want to make a Disney film or people grew up being like I really want to make a video game so they're willing to go that extra mile to try and make something special but then horrible corporations are like we can exploit that willingness to go to the the extra mile to do something special yeah and they don't discourage those kind of Mm. uh, harmful behaviors like grinding and crunching yes those are the same things, but you know what I mean. Crunch. Sometimes it's encouraged. When this project was initially announced, African-American critics disapproved of some of the aspects of the story. The original name for the heroine was Maddie. Due to its similarity to the derogatory term Mammy, they didn't like it. Other initial objections were Maddie's original career as a chambermaid, the choice to have the black heroine's love interest be a non-black prince, and the use of a black male voodoo witch doctor as the film's villain. The original title, The Frog Princess, was also also thought by critics to have been a slur on French people. I thought it was a bit too much, to be honest. The French, you don't own the word frogs. Just that everyone is kind of mean to you about calling you frogs because you eat frogs. That's on you for eating frogs. It's like us and the potatoes, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, Irish people eating potatoes all the time. It's like, well, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, we do. We do love our spuds, we have to say. Some also question the film's setting of New Orleans, which had been heavily damaged by Hurricane Katrina in 2005, resulting... Also, you can't set a film there? Duff. Gar, that's a, that's a bold word. It's but that's one of those things. It's like, oh, New Orleans is going through a hard time, so you shouldn't set an animated film about frogs there. It's like, why? They said that the choice of New Orleans uh, as a setting for the film with a black heroine was an affront to the Katrina victims' plight. What? Uh, How? And they how because of because the hurricane resulted in the expulsion of a large number of mostly black residents. I don't see the connection there. No, that's one of those things where you're taking that. Uh, they're making, if anything, like this film is representing black people in a way that has never. I I will never for a second try to speak for black people on this podcast. But this is a revolutionary Disney film in terms of the number of black people represented on screen. And to be like, you shouldn't do it because black people were displaced by a hurricane. It's like that's. 
I don't know. That's 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 a that's a reach that will cause you to blow your back out. Disney did make some concessions in response to the criticism. They changed the title. Mm. They changed Maddie's name to Tiana, as we know, and the character's occupation was altered from chambermaid to waitress. Oprah Winfrey was also hired as a technical consultant on the film, leading to her taking a role in the film as Tiana's mother, Eudora. So there's like a tiny bit of that stuff where you cringe a little bit. Like I think once in the film, Tiana says, "Oh, lordy," yeah, and you're like, "Well, if if Oprah's on board, maybe." she said like okay we can allow that because I feel like that's a stereotype but maybe that is something that they would have said yeah it always depends it's like if a white person scripts somebody saying that it's like hmm Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Warren's plenty of side eye and that that is usually the problem with things that uh, have like great black representation is just like well if it's written and entirely made or majority made by white people it's always gonna be you know running that line of well is this either appropriation or just inappropriate which is the reason you should always get the people you're representing to help make the thing you're representing them in they should always play a considerable role in it no I agree for sure so, in terms of the story, like I have a few notes here. Lawrence is a classic Disney villainous butler. We haven't seen one of those since Aristocats, actually. Yeah, Lawrence looks like a character straight out of any of the 60s or 70s Disney films, doesn't yeah. he? In terms of, I can't remember. Like, there's definitely a character that looks just like him, but I don't remember who it is. I can't remember either, but yeah, it really is going back to that style. That oh, Lassiter Wind in the wanted. Willows, the dude in the house. Doesn't he look just like Lawrence? Maybe he does. There's some characters like, or, or maybe something in Cinderella. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. which one was Wind Wind the Willows? Was um, what film was that in? It's your bottom, Mr. Toad. Yeah, it was Mr. Toad. So, Mr. T- yeah, Mr. Toad. I don't know. Mr. Toad is a toad, though. Yeah, but that's part of the film. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, the, he looks like something that would have been out, out of those 60s and 70s Disney films. Dr. Facilier is the most traditional Disney villain we've seen in a while. A lot of the films we've watched recently don't have villains. Mm. So, where does he sit in the Disney canon of villains for you? Uh, like a lot of this film, nostalgic but lower tier, which is my general feeling about this film. It invokes those 90s films without quite matching the quality of them. Like, I, I like the music, and I think it very much, of course, it's a lot of jazz music to match the New Orleans settings, because they, they, they tie all that together, and it makes sense. But is it the be- are they the best songs in the world? No. A Shadow Man, good villain, works for the film, pushes the plot along. Is he the best villain? No. I like Keith David's performance, though. I think he's good in it. Um, he's good in everything. Yeah, same with the story, same with uh, all the morals, all that stuff. It's all like, it's all pretty solid, but it's not top tier, but it does, it just pulls those nostalgia strings. And that's why I think this film works so much. It's a throwback without particularly driving anything new or different forward, except maybe the, the degree to, of representation. That's, I think, what makes this film stand out. But is it like the best Disney Broadway style musical? Not by a long shot. Same with Shadow Man. Is he the best Disney villain? Is he up there with Scar, who I think is the best Disney villain? No. I like the characterization. I know some people had a problem with the witch doctor thing, but I don't think they leaned too much into that. I think he's just a, a bad guy that used magic for his own means. And, and eventually that use of magic betrays him and he gets killed. Yeah. and <laughs> Swallowed into the underworld. That somewhat comes into the Tiana story, though, because the moral of his story is shortcuts don't get you anywhere. Mm. You know, so like selfishness and shortcuts was his undoing in the end. Yeah. So that- really, his was it's a pretty elaborate plot to be like, all right, I'm going to turn you into you and you, you're going to marry her and then I'm going to kill him and then we'll take the his money. fortune. Yeah. It's like, if, why don't you just, I don't know, kill him? John, steal his money? John Goodman popping up again in, in a film? Yes, for the first time since Emperor's New Groove. That's probably a day's work for him. Yeah, payday. How bad? Happy out. 
What do you make uh, of Lewis and Ray as support characters? Like, I, I do like Ray. Ray's little arc gets me every time. Yeah, Ray, ha- Ray has uh, has something going on. Even Lewis has his own little like I want to dream to be a, a a jazz musician. And but I'm a, and the scenes where he's like he's an alligator trying to be a jazz musician and showing up on stage and everyone flees in terror are quite amusing. I like that. As like the clearly put in this film as comic relief for kids sidekicks, uh, pretty solid. Pretty solid tier. I like the little character quirk that Lewis carries his trumpet in his tail. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, so like usually those characters are added to add nothing, like Ben from frickin' Treasure Planet, uh, the last Musker and Clemens Or film. Miko and Flit, those kind of characters. Yeah. yeah, these characters that are put into it to be like, oh, look, they're for the kids, and they're they're doing the wacky jokes, and usually they're annoying. But uh, like, as I said, Ray and Lewis, they have actual, like, character arcs and story but, resolutions. And they're both satisfying in their own ways. Though I, I will reject Ray's death, because, like... He stepped on. He should be a a puddle of goo. He should not be like, oh, I'm dying now. He's He's gone. He's gone. But then he goes to live with Evangeline. He becomes a star in the sky. Uh Is that where all fireflies go when they die? That's what they were implying. That's where the the ball of gas comes from? From the spirit? I don't know. Science. I think also the development of Tiana and Naveen's relationship versus other Disney princess films is a development. I think it's, uh, I don't know. It's fairly standard, but I also think that there's there's not that kind of falling in love in one glance. It kind of is, though. They fall in love through their journey because he becomes less selfish and he grows to love her for who she is. Because, you know, for a lot of the films, she's a frog. So it's not based on her looks. You know, a lot of the mm. Disney films in the past, it's like, oh, she's beautiful. She will be mine. That's basically it. You know? It's mostly for her food in this. Yeah. And Tiana has her own motivations, her own character. I think it's a, a strong female character as well. I think they have no chemistry. I think that's my problem. Yeah. They're they're not a couple that I'm like, oh, I need to see them together in the end. They're just like, all right, that's the resolution of this film. And even in a a fantasy, like, would they stay married long term? I don't know. He seems like a selfish guy. (laughs) Eventually it'll be their undoing. He he, he has not fully changed. He's only like, oh, this is my easiest current route to success. And I I don't much care for the love story. As I said, I don't think they have a particularly large amount of chemistry together. Maybe because they're frogs for the entire film. That probably doesn't help. One thing I find interesting as well is like we're seeing a trend here and we see it obviously entangled as well. The prince is always seen in the past as virtuous and good and there's nothing bad about him. But, you know, here there's more layers. They're kind of selfish jerks who learn to, to be better. Which is, and it's like the woman makes the jerkish man better, which is a cliche in its own right. But uh, it's, it's a recurring theme throughout these post-Renaissance films where it's same with uh, Cusco. And what was the the other one that had, uh, even like uh, Lou, not Lewis, the one before that from Chicken Little or like I don't even remember her name that's how forgettable she, or Ugly Duckling is basically the driving force between, behind making Chicken Little be a good chicken and, and do the right thing and push him to, to reconcile with his father so it's all like the women are fixing the men's horrible character flaws it's like ugh. Yeah, like you should you should be a good person in your own right we don't need anyone to stop being a jerk yeah stop, stop needing fixing Girl, Princess and the Frog features songs and a score written by Randy Newman boy would you know it I was Gary, you say that, but I was not aware of this previously. Like I didn't oh, look. God. But if you li- if you watch the first literally five minutes of this film, there are musical cues that are straight out of Toy Story. Yeah, in hindsight, the musical cues and even down in New Orleans, like you can see his DNA everywhere. Is there is there a version where he sings down in New Orleans? I don't know. I'm gonna look it up because if there is, it would be the most Randy Newman song ever. But as I said, like you will hear the first light, like tinkles of music in this film, and you're like, oh boy, that's Randy Newman. The score has a very Pixar esque vibe due to Randy Newman's 
style because he, he basically did all the early Pixar films as we know although it's not the songs aren't entirely his style so that's why maybe I didn't catch it yeah the songs go back to like the, the more like traditional as I said Broadway style but uh, except for Down in Orleans as you mentioned which is a very Randy Newman song but like those musical cues as I said they're literally they're, they almost feel like they're just the same ones that were in Toy Story Alan Menken was originally considered but filmmakers thought that the songs might sound too similar to Enchanted which was released just two years earlier mm. and you know I, th- I think it's good to go in different directions he's done a lot of films in the past yeah and like Menken had just worked on Home on the Range did he do a film after Home on the Range I don't think no. so but like he had done Home it's not like he'd been ostracised from Disney and there's no Menken songs yeah even though like the idea of this being a throwback you'd think alright we'll get Menken we don't obviously uh, Howard Ashman had passed away so it, it's just uh, Menken there these these days but you, you would think maybe they'd be like alright we're going full 2D animation musical throwback we gotta get Menken but uh, I think Randy Newman adds a different quality to this film especially because uh, while it is in the kind of Broadway style uh, the music is generally a lot more jazzy so you probably want something different I wrote down some of my thoughts on the music here Gard. Down in New Orleans is a tune I enjoy that one very much mm-hmm. Almost There is also a bop I actually love that whole sequence going back to what I was saying earlier the song the visual style all very good Sorry Friend on the Other Side is a very good Disney villain song Yeah I think they're all good, not great. That's my. I think that's my my take on the music in this film. I think it's all solid and works for what it's trying to do in the film. But is it the Disney songs I'll be listening to over and over again? Not really. Yeah, there's songs I like more than these songs in other films. There's songs I like more than others in this film. You know, there's a few standouts and a couple of serviceable songs. But I don't think there's a dud in the bunch. There's a lot of songs in this film as well. Yeah. What, there's like eight, maybe? Yeah, which is a lot more. Normally there's around four, maybe? Yeah, you usually get the longing song, the villain song, the kind of like we're going on an adventure song and then maybe one more and maybe a reprise oh the love song there's so they're like the the general four you get as opposed to this where there's like the intro song the longing song the villain song each of the characters get a song and then there's I think just another song thrown in just for the sake of it because why not so yeah there is at least a lot of music in this film I think this film is a little long I think they could have cut like 10 minutes out of the bayou sequence actually specifically the sequence I would have cut was like the, the three hunter guys just take that bit out i get there was like we needed a little second act peril here it's like no you don't <laughs> and the thing is like there's not much peril anyway it doesn't derail the story much it's like three minutes maybe total. It, it, it's played for comedy mostly but I, I think they could have cut the journey to the uh what's the name of the witch in the woods whatever her name is mama odie yeah the journey to mama odie's house could have been like 10 minutes shorter and i think this film would have breathed by a little quicker and not lost anything in particular but yeah it's a it's a good film. It is a good film. In terms of the legacy, Gareth, Tiana, as you said, is the first African-American Disney princess. It's the most represented African-Americans have been in a Disney film to date. A lot of African-American people in previous films were playing different kind of characters like bears and other things. Or even just supporting roles. Yeah, or horses. Just yeah. for them to be in lead roles in a, a Disney animated film is long overdue frankly in the year 2009 yeah and you know we haven't really seen it since but which is also bizarre i guess like there is there's been other representation like moana but yeah and soul as well obviously you know yeah so, so there you know progress is progress but it is slow. slow but there was a story out this week that there was some leaked uh, disney plus like marketing information and like powerpoint slides that are like oh they we want to increase our our african-american subscriber base and it's like maybe you know represent them more in the things you make and they might subscribe to the things you release you know people will always respond to things they can see themselves in yeah and feel ostracized by disney plus which is very white at the moment you're mm-hmm. correct the critical and commercial success of the film had disney considering a 
strategy of releasing a 2D film every two years, with Winnie the Pooh being the first in 2011, that hasn't really borne out. Frozen began life as a 2D project named The Snow Queen before switching to computer animation. I think it's sad that we haven't seen that play out over the last decade. Yeah, we've had Pooh and nothing. In the 10 years after Pooh, not a single 2D film. Do they have any in the pipelines? No. Well, in 2019, after Lasseter's exit from the studio, Jennifer Lee, who took over from him, said that 2D animation was still possible and that different styles are driven by the filmmakers who choose what they want to tell their stories the right way. So there, nobody has chosen 3D. They're still open to it. As you said, Garrett, the process is probably longer. It's more expensive. And uh, like someone's like, I want to make this film in, th- in 2D. And it's like, sure. You could pinch those pennies, but at the same time, as well, Gar, we have a generation of animators now who grew up learning 3D. Mm. So maybe it's just that they don't have the skills. Well, uh, there is a, a Disney Plus project about Tiana. Yes, that's I, on my list here. Going to be released in 2022. I assume that's probably going to be 2D, right? Mm, a, lot of, a lot of the follow-ups have been 3D. Like what? You know, there's, you know the cartoons and stuff. But then the, the Lion Guard, it was 2D, so... Yeah, so hopefully they'll at least stick to the 2D style for the... And that's not like, you know, the, the Pixar release, the popcorn thing recently, dreadful. But yeah. it's like, here's a bunch of things that are are just slapstick comedy guys because we have none of the voice actors in to do any of the work, as opposed to Tiana, which is supposedly like a fully featured animated show which is pretty cool by the Disney Animated Studios team which yeah, is not, also pretty cool not the cool. television studio team so uh, hopefully they stick with the animation style there as opposed to doing something in 3D because I, I, I would honestly absolutely hate for them to, to shift the entire style of Princess and the Frog which is known as like the, oh, we're doing 2D again and we did it really well if they did it in 3D you'd be like well what are you doing why why did you choose this to turn into a show and then strip out the things that made it interesting in the first place. I agree and I, I like the idea of an animated I, I, I don't know what it would be. Would it be like a sitcom or more of a kind of a, a drama? I think it would be somewhere in the middle. But like just using animation to tell stories over a series which they've done in TV but for kids but doing it for like a, an everybody audience is interesting. Yeah. Um, well to be fair if you look at the Marvel shows they have uneven uh, levels of quality in terms of adapting things for television where WandaVision was very much a television show on both a structural and meta level and Falcon and the Winter Soldier very much isn't that's just a six-part movie that they've happened to put up on disney plus so maybe the maybe tiana will just be a 10-part movie as opposed to an actual tv show paced like a tv show where each episode has its own little narrative arc as opposed to it just being chunk number three of this six-part movie i'm hoping for the former but who knows it's uh, like it is is interesting like that's been a that's been a general streaming problem it hasn't just been like a marvel or or a disney plus problem because if you watch a lot of netflix shows it's like you just made a 10-part movie like this this one hour chunk that's meant to be part four of this does not work in a self-contained way whatsoever but uh, you know if you watch it as a run of the 10 hour movie it's fine and like that art of like making a thing that's meant to be this self-contained one hour of television or less whatever it is 40 minutes or 30 minutes that that's that's an art and requires a completely different style of writing than writing a marvel movie and it's it's kind of a shame that the the the, the binging culture and the streaming culture has seen a move away from making television as television. If you look at the Doctor Who model, the way they produce things is that they have an overall arc for the series and that's overseen by the showrunner, right? Like, they'll have episodes, so they'll go like, okay, you write your episode, you can write whatever you want, but here's the bit you have to tie in. They are, to, it's, it's called, to, to pardon the double entendre, lane pipe. Yeah. That's what they say. Here's the pipe you need to put in this episode, the structural foundation to get yeah. us, you know, to connect to the next bit, thus pipe. That's what, that's what they put in there. What pipe do we need to put into this episode? TV lingo. I learned that from the, the West Wing Weekly. But, yeah, 
Yeah, and then, like Doctor Who is a very good example of, of a show that has like individual self-contained episodes all the time. But as you said, this broader narrative arc that it, they generally fit into, as opposed to just being here's this one narrative arc where you get a piece of it that doesn't work individually every time. And I think it is a consequence of streaming and binging because they're like, we don't really need to make them self-contained because you just go on to the next bit. You know, you just That's keep on point. going. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, television where like if that was the way it worked on CBS, nobody would watch the show because it's just like, well, this was entirely unsatisfying by itself, which is the point of television. You know, it would yeah. be like, and it's a problem with movies as well. Everything needs its cinematic universe now. So that means that everything needs to set up the next thing and nothing can be self-contained or end by itself. And that's where so many of those cinematic universes fall off or die because they do not work as pieces by themselves. They're too busy building a universe that they forget to actually be a entertaining thing by itself. So it, it kills stuff like the Dark Pictures universe because the Mummy film was all about setting up seven other different films. Or conversely, they didn't do the work in the first place for something like the DCEU in the Justice League. Or instead of taking the time to do it over time and making the individual self-contained parts, they rush it all together and it ended up being a disaster. So yeah, it's interesting to watch the, that play out both in movies and television. People's inability to make things that work by themselves. But Princess and the Frog works by itself because it's a self-contained movie that does not connect to anything. And it's a, a good self-contained movie that does not connect to anything. Though I would not say great. I think it does set up the studio for going back to the basics that made them successful. And you could say that's regression, but at the same time, we did acknowledge in the previous films that they got very far away from what they did well. And I think that's okay. I think that's that's okay to go back to the, the well yeah. once you try to push the art form forward. And we have seen it here when they, you know, they're increasing representation for other pockets of the global community. The songs are good. The animation is very pleasing on the eye. The story is satisfying. It hits all those Disney notes that you want. So, like, if you want something different that's not the, the films that you watch all the time uh, and you want something that's it's going to be a pleasant experience, I'd always go back to Princess and the Frog. And as we mentioned in the recent episodes where Disney had their 2000s identity crisis, it's like, who are we? What are we doing? What are we making? What are we trying to do? What does Disney mean? Or specifically, what does Disney animation mean in this landscape? And, uh, like, I specifically said, why the hell is your idea to start doing what DreamWorks is doing instead of going back to doing what Disney did? And this is very much them being like, let's just go back to doing what we did. And as I said, this is not a film that I particularly love as like the top tier of Disney. It's a film that I enjoyed, but it's a film that if you watch all of these movies in a row or you you get through the 2000s stretch from Fantasia 2000 all the way through to Bolt, when you watch this, it's like, oh, this is the films I loved in the 90s. (laughs) You know, it will tickle that nostalgia itch that you've been probably desperate for because they haven't made a musical film since Tarzan. And even then, Tarzan is, you know, Phil Collins singing. So they really haven't made a musical film since... Hercules? So Or Mulan. Not as many songs as Mulan. Yeah, so it, it goes all the way back. It will. This film is extremely nostalgic in a way that I'm on board with and as it's, it informs what the studio, again, goes back to becoming. And you can see it starting to pivot with the characterizations, modernizing those a little bit. We see that develop further into Tangled and Frozen. So it does go back to the drawing board, but they do seem to start trying to push it forward to make it more relevant to a modern audience and modern sensibilities. Yeah, Tiana is far from a Cinderella-esque princess. Like, she's far from helpless. She's far from not dictating her own journey. She's far from being one of those, like, Disney princesses that just has nothing going on behind the eyes. She's just like, look at her dressed in animation model. Isn't she classy? It's like, that's not where the studio is anymore. And that's where these films are moving forward, as opposed to, like, the, the overall genre. 
Alright Disney heroes, sadly we've nearly come to the end of the show for another week. Resident musical expert Nicole is coming up in just a few moments with a song from The Princess and the Frog. She's bound to give us a performance that we won't forget in a hurry, so be sure to stay with us for that at the end of the show. New episodes of Magic by Design land every Monday, where all magical podcasts are downloaded. Stop by our website at magicbydesign.buzzsprout.com to find a full list of podcast platforms. We are literally everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, you name it, we're on it. Make sure to subscribe wherever your heart desires so you never miss an episode. Do you agree with our assessment of Princess and the Frog or are you making voodoo dolls to punish us as we speak? Send us your cursed creations by joining the conversation. Ow! My arm hurts. By joining the conversation on Facebook. That was quick. Yeah. Facebook.com forward slash Magic by Design Pod on Twitter at Magic Design Pod and on Insta at Magic by Design Pod. If you're a fan of the show and want to support what we're doing here, please do consider giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Five stars, please. If you are so inclined, you can also share the podcast on your socials or recommend the show to a fellow Disney fan. If you give us a five star review, we will protect you from the shadow demons. Mm-hmm. Our faces are the only thing that they're afraid of in this mortal realm. Faces hideous to her. See, I, I, I went self-deprecating instead of mocking you, Ken. That, that you, you literally teed me up for a home run shot, and me, in my kindness, let it go. That's a couple of films away, Gar. You're losing your edge. We will be back next week at the same time, same place, with a review of Disney's 50th animated feature, Tangled. But until then, stay safe and remember: if you do your best each and every day, good things are sure to come your way. Maybe. We don't know. Or don't work too hard. Have a life. I think that's the moral of this film. Now then, it's time for our grand finale. Nicole is here with a jazzy cover of Almost There from The Princess and the Frog. Thanks for listening. Now take us home, Nicole. Hello there, my Disney lovers. It's me, your musical correspondent, Nicole, coming to you live from my bedroom. This week, we're taking it swing style to The Princess and the Frog. Alan Menken was originally supposed to compose the music. However, Disney producer John Lasseter thought better of it and gave the role to Randy Newman, a jazz musician from New Orleans who had previously worked on Toy Story. In fairness, good call. The soundtrack is a blend of jazz, blues, gospel and zydeco, a southwest Louisiana style of blues and rhythm blended with French Creole and Native American musical influences, creating up-tempo dance numbers. Neo wrote and performed the end track title called Never Knew I Needed, which was released to radio stations as a commercial single to promote the film. The soundtrack features 10 original songs and 7 instrumentals, all composed and arranged by Newman. Famous New Orleans artist Malcolm John Rebenack, better known as Dr. John, sings the opening down in New Orleans. One thing that struck me is that Newman composed the song You've Got a Friend in Me for Toy Story, and I can't help but hear his distinctive jazz instrumentation when I listen back to this soundtrack. It's full of bops. Oscar and Grammy Award nominated bops, but unfortunately no wins. Speaking of bops, this week I'm singing I'm Almost There. I I hope you enjoy it. That she's gonna have to wait a while Ain't got time for messing around And it's not my style This whole town can slow you down People taking the easy way But I know exactly where I'm going I'm getting closer and closer every day And I'm almost there I'm crazy, but I don't care. 
I've had my share 